Welcome everyone to this uh, special podcast with uh, Professor Richard Wynne-Jones, who's Director of Cardiff University's Wales Governance Centre and Dean of Public Affairs there. He's published seven books, edited seven books, collections. Um, he looks a lot naturally at Welsh politics, devolved politics in the UK, nationalism. He wrote a book with Ailsa Henderson from Edinburgh, which has been a fascinating book about Englishness. And uh, one of the reasons that we're speaking today is because Richard and I last met at the Brick Up of Britain conference, which was maybe just a month ago now, uh, which brought folk together from every part of the UK from, I suppose, backgrounds who are, let's just say, mildly critical um, uh, and thinking about the future of Britain. Um, so, Richard, uh, uh, hello. Hiya. And Friends, Pat. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, just to register that Pat is also, yes, he might yes. be a silent partner for a wee minute as, <laughs> as right. we all speak. Yeah, yep. um, I, I am here. Pat's here. So, uh, Richard, that was that was some event, wasn't it? The it, was, was it was, it was, um, it was stunning. I, I think that, um, I mean, I spent quite a lot of time coming up to Scotland uh before the 2014 referendum and you know like i suspect almost everybody who who rocked up was just impressed by just the sheer extent of the engagement and you know academics are not used to speaking in front of hundreds of engaged people and there was a real sense of that in the in the in the event and it was so appropriate tom nan was uh, was such a well a huge influence on, on me and so many other people and so it was uh, it was genuinely uh, an honour to be part of something that 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 remembered him in the right way. So yes, amazing. Mm -hmm. And and actually, it's an astonishing thing that we then decided we would do this podcast specifically because you um, actually were part of a panel about Englishness, Bagora. And as everyone will hear, I mean, how many clues do you need in Richard's name and his accent and you could now do the rest of this podcast in fluent Welsh that yes. you are Welsh not English right yeah well I mean it's 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 one of my things as I say that as Welsh speakers have been um been observing the English with some concern for about a thousand years and so it seemed appropriate <laughs> to write a book but also I think it's I mean it I think it says quite a lot that most of the serious work on English national identity and its political implications has been happening in Cardiff and Edinburgh, actually, um, which I think says something quite interesting, which we might come back to uh, later yeah. on. Yeah, but it's a subject which is of, of huge interest to me uh, and I think of huge importance to all of us who live in the States, because England, after all, is 85 percent of the population. And so for those of us who, who live around the periphery of the English core of the state, that that should be of huge interest uh, to all of us. Yes. And we will come back to that. In fact, we would have been horsing on with that had it not been for the fact that yesterday uh, Mark Drakeford announced that he was resigning as First Minister of Wales, which has kept you up all night <laughs> writing a piece for The Guardian, which folk will see in the a link uh, with this podcast so they can read it. Um, but yes, I mean, that's a big moment. It, has it been as seismic for, for Wales as Nicola Sturgeon resigning in Scotland? Um not quite, because obviously the circumstances of Nicola Sturgeon's departure and all this, well, from the outside, weird stuff around the police and, you know, tents in the garden as if it was a murder scene. There's been none of that kind of drama slash melodrama. Um, we knew that Mark Drakeford would be leaving. He, he'd always said that he would leave um, enough time for his 
successor to Bedin before the devolved election in May 26. And there was a, well, obviously, if you think about it, when do you go? Do you wait for the next UK general election, which could potentially mean that he was still leader uh, up until potentially even January of 2025? Or does he go now? Um, it's also uh, the case that uh, the First Minister sadly lost his wife, tragically lost his wife mm. earlier this year, uh, uh, unexpectedly died very suddenly. There's no doubt that that's had a, a big impact. And so, you know, it, once you put the pieces together, it makes sense. But still, yesterday was... Um, one of those days where, you know, that yeah, it really it really struck one because he has been central to Welsh politics for for two decades. He he's been first minister for five years. Before that, he'd played uh, kind of he'd taken on all the senior roles in Welsh government. Previously, he was the right hand man as special advisor to Rhodri Morgan when he was first minister. So he's been a really pivotal figure to everything that's happened over the last couple of decades. By far the highest profile devolved politician. And so, that you know, it, 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 there'll be a lot of getting used to this, to be honest with you. Mm. And he, he also described himself quite openly as a socialist, which for a lot of Labour people these days, you know, I don't know if he's still that way. Drakeford is Mark. We, we tend to... We lose the surnames in Welsh politics for, for, for reasons that we could maybe talk about at some other point. But, you know, Mark has been, um, he's always been on, on the left of the party. He's very happy to s- describe himself in, in those terms. But he's, he's, he's also, I mean, he's also deeply pragmatic. I once described him as a pragmatic Corbynite, which people didn't mm-hmm. really get. But, I mean, he's very interested in executive power He's very aware of the compromises that you inevitably inevitably make when you're in one of those roles. So, you know, he gets lots of brickbats from people on his left saying, well, his, you know, the actions don't match the radicalism of his rhetoric. I suspect he would say, well, yeah, it's easy for you to say that. But, you know, given the budget constraints in which we work, uh, given the... The, all the difficult choices that one inevitably has to make, you know, you can't govern in that way. Uh, you can't govern in poetry, so to speak. And and so he, he's a very, very interesting example of somebody on the left who's been very used to wielding executive power and making the compromises that are necessary if you do that. And then some of that compromise has actually been being in government with Plaid Cymru. Now, that's kind of unbelievable. In Scotland, that would be the equivalent of Labour being in with the SNP, which, you know, some people might think might might not be such a desperate thing and that you would get a lot of left to centre people finally on the same side of the wicket. But the constitutional question simply means that's utterly unthinkable. Um, how has that worked? Extremely well. Um, I mean, this is one of the things where reading across from Scotland to Wales or vice versa is just um, is just a category error. I mean, the key division in Wales really isn't on uh, the constitution or in, in any simple way. Um, and indeed, Welsh Labour has been very conscious of the 
the hole in which uh, Scottish Labour dug itself into by essentially allying with the Conservatives against uh, another centre-left party, i.e. the SNP, and has been determined never to get itself into that position in Wales. And so, um, you know, it's it's absolutely worked not to alienate its own independence, supporting members that are independent, supporting Welsh Labour candidates, or they were at the time of the 2021 devolved election. And the division in Wales is basically Labour implied uh, and the Greens and the Lib Dems on one side and the Conservatives on the other. And that's how Welsh politics works. And Labour has been very determined in Wales to make sure it continues to work in that way, because they know that uh, if they leave the kind of standing up for Wales ground to Ply Cymru, then what happened in 1999 could happen in Wales. And in 1999, Ply Cymru did better than the SNP. Uh, everybody mm. forgets that in the first devolved election, Ply Cymru actually outperformed the SNP and Labour in Wales responded to that by deciding that they would never again allow Ply Cymru to represent itself as the party standing up for Wales against the centre. And obviously Scottish Labour did something uh, different and have uh, have had some hard years uh, as a result. That's just, I mean, I actually didn't remember that at all. That's amazing. And, yeah, and no, you, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, Ply Cymru, I mean, we, <laughs> I, I can talk for a long time about this, but, you know, people don't, people forget that in, in 1999, uh, Plaid Cymru not only won some very, very iconic seats from the Labour Party, but came within hundreds of votes of sweeping the industrial valleys or the former industrial valleys of South Wales. They had an astonishing election, frightened the life out of the Labour Party, who responded by, you know, rebranding as Welsh Labour, literally and metaphorically draping themselves in the Red Dragon and becoming a small N. Nationalist Party, they've played, if you like, the regional politics game very well. So, you know, in regional politics, you stand up for your your part of the state against the centre. Uh, and Labour in Wales have done that, whether it was the Conservatives or Labour in power in, in London. From the outside, it looks to me that in the first decade of devolution, Scottish Labour decided to become... The, you know, the tribunes of the centre in Scotland. And that is just a huge, huge political error. Pat, I'm sure you want yeah. to come in. Yeah, I mean, because I, I, I've got several things here. Because I, I was intrigued, other than the personal uh, uh, for Mark Drakeford, and it's interesting you refer to him as Mark, because we would talk about Humza and Nicola and Alex and all these things up here as well in yeah. terms of first names. But it, it, moving to the political uh, is there a sense that uh, he might have had significant difficulty with the uh, current Labour, uh, uh, the future Labour administration under Keir Starmer? And there might be that, that clash that would take place if and when there's going to be a Labour government, which is unlike the, the Welsh uh, Labour Party, which has wrapped itself in the dragon flag. Labour Party is, is particularly draping itself in the union jacket every available opportunity. Yeah, I think, you know, I think... Uh... I think Welsh Labour, I mean, I, I've, ju I've just been saying that Welsh Labour have played the devolved politics game extremely skillfully. After that 
massive shock of the 1999 uh, result, the first devolved election result. They've they've played a very, very canny game. And of course, it helped at the time that uh, Tony Blair had uh, clearly uh, regarded Rodri Morgan as a kind of political rival uh, and imposed Alan Michael, his own guy on the Welsh Labour Party, Alan Michael was deposed as part of this whole rebranding of Labour in Wales as Welsh Labour and, you know, playing the kind of small end nationalist card. They've been very, very skillful at that. I think there's a big question as to what happens next year when, as as we all expect, Keir Hardy becomes the UK's Prime Minister. Um, and... You know, I think that there is there is a kind of control freak um, element, very obvious around Starmer, and how how will they respond to a Welsh Labour Party that you know tries to distinguish, differentiate itself from what happens in in London? I mean, Plaid Cymru will absolutely be hoping that Welsh Labour, a Welsh Labour government. Uh, feels that it needs to defend everything that the UK government yeah. does, even if it's detrimental to Wales. Um, that would be that would be perfect for Plaid Cymru. There are people in Welsh Labour who obviously realise that, but it is going to be very difficult. And now that um, Mark Drakeford is going, you know, it's going to be much more of a, a challenge for whoever succeeded succeeds him because they don't carry the personal credibility and clout that um, Mark Drakeford uh, has. Mark Drakeford won the devolved election in 2021 handily, really. So that gave him, gives him credibility and his successor inevitably won't enjoy that. So I think that this is going to be a very, very interesting period for those of us who observe the Welsh Labour Party closely. Can they continue to distinguish themselves from the UK Labour brand continue with the kind of, you know, patriotic left, small end nationalist approach that they've adopted so successfully? Or do they feel the need to kind of start justifying things that happen in London, even if they don't necessarily don't necessarily work out for Wales? And I mean, the, just the one thing that uh, we talked about in the podcast before was the fact that when there was um, a, a kind of exercise done by the Senate, uh, which looked at the asked the public to respond to the constitutional future of Wales. To our mind, astonishingly, a Labour government, albeit in in partnership with Plaid, yeah. had actually put independence as one of the options people could respond about. Yeah. Yes. Which is amazing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I mean, I, I, I mean, around forty percent of independent supporters in Wales uh, support Labour. Um, I mean, Plaid and Labour supporters are very, very similar in terms of values, even in terms of attitudes towards the constitutional future of Wales. The the big divide between the two parties really is is cultural. Uh, you know, it's it's language is a is a kind of cleavage in in Welsh society that you don't really have in the same way. Uh, in Scotland, but the the two parties are very very similar. I mean, I mean, obviously Labour. There's more to Labour than that. Labour is a is as a dominant party. It's won every general election in Wales 
for a century. Uh, it is a dominant party and dominant parties, you know, hold within them all the kind of contradictions of the society that they represent. And so there are there is a, a kind of hardcore unionist wing uh, to Welsh Labour. But there's also um, a large and powerful wing within Welsh Labour that, you know, has, a, I think, a purely instrumental attitude towards the UK state, doesn't feel any particular sense of Britishness. So, you know, Labour is, is very complicated, but a large swathe of Labour looks very, very similar to the larger swathe of, of Ply Cymru. The, the main difference there would be would be cultural. And so that partly explains, to go back to your original question, that partly explains why they cooperate really easily in government. There have been, you know, obviously every coalition or every kind of partnership arrangement inevitably has its tensions, but the two parties have cooperated with each other, uh, you know, with with ease uh, on the whole, uh, and they've come up with some pretty weird and wonderful ways, ways of governing. So currently we have a, I mean, I, I suspect most people in Scotland will not be aware of this, but currently we have Labour in power uh, by themselves, but there are Ply Cymru special advisers in the Welsh government. So it's not a formal coalition. There are no Ply Cymru ministers, but there are Ply Cymru special advisers working with the Welsh government or working in the Welsh government, which is a highly novel, highly unorthodox way of organising a government, but has worked actually very smoothly. Wow. And then even if you were to broaden this, um, actually, a lot of green kind of things seem to have crept into the actions that have happened with this late, well, Labour government then, um, yeah. in that, I mean, a lot of attention has been directed to the 20 mile an hour zones. But yeah. there was a, an even astonishing uh, decision to kind of reverse the budget for motorway building, which yeah. for anyone who has travelled around the south southern bit of Wales, it, it, you know, the, 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 the motorways are just like gridlocked an awful lot of the time, actually. Um, and yet... I think it was something like four billion quid that was taken out of that into public transport, which, I mean, people, I guess that level of really huge shift in yep. uh, invest public investment would have most Greens singing hallelujah. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's a whole, there's a kind of whole range of things going on in there. One is that the, there's a particular bit of, of motorway, which I think you're probably referring to, which is basically around Newport. So between Cardiff and the English border, um, where there's a huge issue, uh, but that's basically a, a geological issue, and to and to build around it will cost will will, uh, will involve going through a, a a really important piece of marshland and a very large piece of marshland, and doing that will cost God knows how much. So there's a there's an element of pragmatism mm. about you know you could throw as much money as you can possibly imagine at that problem spend all of Wales's infrastructure budget on that and still not touch the edges. So that's probably not sensible uh, anyway. But also there is a, you know, one of the things which unites Plaid and the section of the Labour Party, which is most comfortable working with Plaid, is there's a kind of strong green agenda in there. That agenda has been there in Plaid Cymru going back to the 1960s, uh, at least. But it's also there... 
in parts of, if you like, the more patriotic bits of the Welsh Labour Party, and that's and it's part it's part of the common ground between the two parties. I mean, frankly, I, I you know I, I think we need to be cautious here. Public transport in Wales is dreadful. Yeah. Infrastructure in Wales is is generally dreadful. We look in in it with with jealousy at, at you know trains in Scotland compared to the absolute mess, the bin fire that it has been the train service in Wales. Um, so yeah, so I mean, <laughs> I don't, yes. wanna, I, I don't want you to get the impression that we are living in the the land of milk <laughs> and honey uh, here, and that all is well in the world, in the policy world in Wales. It is not. But yes, the fact that they've made that call on on road building is, uh, you know, again genuinely genuinely significant, and that is down in in large part to. Mark Drakeford and his government's commitment, as well, of course, as the as the pressure from Plaid Cymru. Yeah, you know, I'm beginning to realise we could actually sit and talk to you till kingdom come, actually, mm. Richard, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm having to think, oh, God, that's so interesting. What about this? What about that? But we can't. So, I mean, one thing before we move on to the thoughts about Englishness is just with everything you've said, which is totally fascinating about the different direction, the yeah. sort of <clears throat> embracing the red, you know, the red dragon, as it were, yeah. that, that the Welsh Labour Party have done. Why do you think Scottish Labour is so different? Well, I mean, I, it's, I can ask that question to the two of you, actually. What, one thing that strikes me is that it, part of this is path dependency. Path, path of it, part of this goes back to the particular peculiar circumstances of the first devolved election in, in 1999 and what happened after that. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that Tony Blair had an awful relationship with with Rodri Morgan. Um, yeah. Tony Blair went out of his way to undermine Rodri Morgan's position. Rodri Morgan dealt with that with some grace and equanimity, but you know nobody was under any illusions about the nature of that relationship. And because Welsh Labour had that scare in 1999, Rodri then came in the following year as uh, to take over from Alan Michael. Tony Blair's guy, um, there was no problem with Welsh Labour differentiating itself from New Labour. I mean, everybody knew that they didn't get on anyway. So there was, you know, it, it had the virtue of also being true. Um, whereas in Scotland in that same period, New Labour was dominated by Scottish politicians. And yeah. you know, there was all the all of these weird allegiances and all things that you will know and Patrick particularly maybe will know more than this than I do but that meant that the dynamic it seemed to be much much more difficult for Scottish Labour in power to differentiate itself from new Labour uh, in in London because in part Scotland remained the fiefdom of some of those big beasts in new Labour and so it was much more complicated in Scotland whereas in Wales that was quite straightforward. That was quite, quite, quite simple. Everybody knew what the relationship between Blair and uh, Morgan was. <laughs> there was no hiding it. Pat? Yeah, well, what, what intrigues me about this is it, it leads us quite directly, I think, into the Future of England survey, where <laughs> one of the identifying features uh, was the fact that uh, 
English uh, English identifiers felt that Scotland and the Scots had far too much influence in terms of the constitutional arrangements and the financial arrangements and the economy and getting all the benefits of Britain out of it, uh, uh, yeah. Richard. Yeah, so uh, so I, maybe I should just give it a little bit of a context here. If we go back to around 2011, uh, a group of us, as, as I said earlier, in, in Wales and in uh, Edinburgh, decided that there should be more work done on attitudes in England. There had been a flurry of work in the immediate aftermath of devolution. There was a kind of a search for the English backlash because people assumed um, and proclaimed, in fact, that there would be an English uh, backlash to devolution. And there clearly wasn't. All the all the surveys suggested that basically the English had, there was a kind of benign disinterest. You get on with it, we're not bothered. Uh, something seemed to shift, um, um, you know, kind of 2007, 2008, and a group of us decided that we should get together and, and try to create the resource to start surveying attitudes in England towards the place of England within the Union uh, and, you know, attitudes toward devolution, attitudes towards Europe and so on and so forth. And what we found, as you say, Patrick, was that there was what we call devo anxiety, a sense, especially amongst English identifiers in England, that England was getting a raw deal out of devolution. This was particularly at the time focused on Scotland. So as you say, a sense that, that levels of public spending in Scotland were unfairly high, that Scottish influence uh, in British politics was unfairly large. Some of this focused on the, the West Lothian question, some of it undoubtedly focused on some of the personalities at the time, people like Gordon Brown in particular, but also that then related directly to Euroscepticism. So we also know, we also discovered that those people who prioritise an English identity were very, very Euroskeptic and Devo, Devo anxiety and Euroscepticism were kind of two sides of the same coin and you know that's what we found back in 2011 2012 and we've been tracing that through ever since it was a big big um factor in terms of understanding what happened in the brexit referendum in 2016 it was what the conservative party very very successfully mobilized around the time the 2015 general election where they very you know very deliberately as we show in in our book englishness they very deliberately mobilized english resentment at not only at the smp but at scotland and the sense that it would somehow be illegitimate for the smp to have influence on a labor government in england so yeah so the, these are the things that we've discovered and they're still there we 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 recently published a report titled The Ambivalent Union through the IPPR, and that shows that many of these sentiments are still there even now. Yeah. Oh, Sorry, go, go, 
Oh, yeah, right. oh, no, because what I was a way to say was that what, what intrigued me about it was when you were actually looking for funding just at the very start of this, yeah. you, you got you got funded. You looked for funding in 2007 yeah. and you got uh, you getting funding from Europe and everything like But the, you didn't get any funding in the UK to look at English identity at all, because it's that conflation of English identity, British identity, which you've driven a gap through completely in yeah, terms yeah, of. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't, you know. I realise that, that our listeners are going to be playing the world's smallest violin when I say this, but we've we, we've we've never really been able to fund uh, work on English attitudes um, through the kind of conventional channels because people tell us time and again there's nothing to see, <laughs> and when you that's despite Brexit, that's despite people now. It's commonplace to say that Brexit was something to do with English nationalism, although people don't really understand it. But, you know, people now seem to think it's a thing, but funding work on it is very difficult. So so Ilsa and I have been ploughing this this furrow for uh, and colleagues, but especially Ilsa and I for for a decade and, and more uh, and doing all kinds of uh, interesting and, you know, I think quite influential work, but nobody wants to support the, mm. the public attitudes work. So we've had to cobble together bits of funding hither and thither. But there we are. We we, we do that and, and we think that the results are important. And actually, when we come back to the conference, the Breakup of Britain conference had exactly the same problem with funding, which was actually why the ticket price was 25 quid, which actually lends back to your original moment where you think there's 700 people here who've yeah. paid 25 quid. Yeah. But the point was that the expectation of funding from some funders looking at you, Round Tree Foundation, who would normally have swung into a lot of these, you know, progressive sort of questioning conferences. Simply, this is too hot to trot. You can't, you've really re reached the bedrock of everything when you start to question the foundations of, of Britishness. And actually, you know, you, you will be easily boycotted as a professional uh, still, I find, in Scotland, um, if you are on, as it were, the wrong side of the equation, even though we're sitting with an SNP government, go figure. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think I think in terms of, a, in, I mean, obviously, I, I can't speak to the particular Scottish experience, but I think part, part of what we're, what we're facing in terms of work on England is a sense that somehow just... Um, you know, it doesn't matter. This conflation of, between English and Britishness means that people somehow don't take it um, uh, seriously. I think lots of academics, people in people in the academic world, tend to be really uncomfortable. Um, they tend to be centre-left types who are kind of uncomfortable with the whole notion of English uh, national identity. View it as somehow inherently distasteful, and so I think there are there are various. Uh, things going on on here and so you get this you know the study of British politics if I can call it that and the way it's treated in the UK media the London level media is so weird I mean Northern Ireland is basically ignored unless something horrible happens there Scotland and Wales are really too small to count so they're left to the Scottish and Welsh themselves to think about them and the occasional thing like Mark Drickford um, stepping down might get you know might get into a bulletin on the day that it happens but no more than that so basically they talk about British politics they mean England but they never actually mention the word England and never consider to what extent do English attitudes specifically English attitudes 
matter in all of this. So everybody ends up getting ignored in this particular way. That, <laughs> this it's just crazy, yeah. isn't it? Because yeah. it's often it's often the case. I remember we would a lot of people would be railing about the, you know, the place of London dominating our lives. And yet, if you actually look at London, it's yeah. actually very ignored. And very often, London attitudes in, in social and political terms actually match Scottish attitudes in being, you know, pretty pro-migration, pretty, you know, progressive left. It's it's an extraordinarily weird one. I wanted to ask you, though, Richard, about just drilling down, though, into what you find about uh, Englishness when you start to look at it. Mm-hmm. One question that you, you tackled in the conference that I think everyone was fascinated about was that there was basically, given the option, there was no real interest in regional devolution in England. Yeah, this is one of the things where which we we've really put uh, noses out of joints uh, over the years. But you know, I'm I'm very confident that years and years of data basically tell us the same thing. When we started work on English on, on attitudes in England, people would would tell us basically there's you can't talk about England as a, as a single place because it's so internally diverse and it's a regional. Um, it's regional identities that really matter and and kind of extending from that that the real answer to the problems of the UK is regional devolution for England. And, and paradoxically, the people who are most invested in regional devolution um, for England tend to be Welsh and Scottish unionists because they mm-hmm. think that that's an easy way uh, or an easier way of securing some kind of harmony and balance in terms of the constitutional arrangements for the states, um, rather than treating Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland as special cases. So we started digging, and what we discovered is, yes, there are definitely um, regional identities in England, of course, but they seem to have very, very few kind of political implications. Support for regional devolution in England is very low compared to other options. And then, okay, people then say, but you're asking about the wrong units. Nobody cares about the official, the official units, the official regional units. Start asking about the North or the Midlands, and so we asked, we started asking about those things. And no, there's no more interest in devolution for those units. And then people said, no, no, it's all about city regions. And actually, no, there's no support uh, really for city regions. And what we find is that if you ask people in England, you want, you know, England treated as a single unit, or you know, England regionalised and we treat the different regions separately, everybody basically wants England treated as a single unit, even those people who feel British rather than English agree with that. So th- this kind of this kind of magic bullet solution that people um, kind of wheel out as if it's the way of dealing with the kind of imbalances of the UK uh, English regional regionalism, it, you know, public support is not there for it, which isn't to say, by the way, that there isn't a very good uh, case, uh, kind of functional case for um, regional governments in England. England is incredibly centralised. Even schools, individual schools uh, are run out of Whitehall, which is insane. Yeah. But, but, but public, but if, but if you want to make an ar- argument for English regionalism, don't make it on the grounds of this is what people really want, because that's not true. 
Um, uh, and so, when we say so this, people get very unhappy, but nonetheless, that's what the evidence suggests. This is totally fascinating. And I know everyone listening going, God, I want to read more about this, but worry not. We'll put all the links to everything that Richard has mentioned in, in, in the podcast uh, notes so that you can read and buy and Excellent. inform yourself, buy. right? But the thing would be, what is going on with the English fundamentally? Because, I mean, it is a bit the same way that actually there are very few books about men. There used to be very few books about men because they are the given. Women are the mm-hmm. other. And so the other always spends a lot of time looking at the given and the given just takes itself as given. So actually in our United Kingdoms, you know, the English are sort of culture is given and the rest of us are the variants on the theme. You know, we're the sort of hint of a tint of when it comes to white. They are brilliant white. <laughs> OK, you know, so that, that's the sort of beginning of the, the thing. But when you look, you know, there's perfectly intelligent, rational, progressive people in England Um who voted for Boris Johnson and the sleeves? I've got to say, people in Scotland kind of speechless because even people who were, you know, possibly veering a bit Tory looked at Boris Johnson and just thought, nah, the guy's a chancer. Now, how is it that, and I don't know, Wales actually tends to vote more Tory than the Scots have, you know, for a period removed Toryism. It has only been revived, ironically enough, by the SNP's existence because they've made themselves the hammer of the Nats. If they didn't have that function here of being the great upholders of the union so that they collect that kind of vote in their own right, in class terms, I think mm-hmm. they would be almost nowhere. So have you got any thoughts on that when it yeah. comes back to all of this, Richard? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I would I would recommend <laughs> the book that Ilsa and I wrote on Englishness because we go into uh, all of this. First, I, I need to I need to correct you. My any Welsh listeners will be horrified that that uh, that you're claiming that somehow Wales is more Tory than Scotland. Um, the, the Tories last won a general election in Wales uh, in 1859. No, no, no. I know that, Richard. So, I know uh, that. So, I know that. Know, I, I, for example, yeah. in the 2010 election, 20% of MPs in Wales were Tory, and it was 1.5% in Scotland. I know. I know. You, you've had you've had a period of late. Oh, but come on. <laughs> no, we invented the Women Labour Party. Honestly. <laughs> Hey, calm down, you two. I, I, but um, I'm defending the anti-Tory honour of Wales here. But Quite um, right. anyway, your point about your serious point about the um, what's going on in England. Um, there, there are there are a few things. One of the things which I think is 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 most interesting, and one of the, I think the key one of the key findings in our book is that. Those people who feel English in England very strongly feel that nobody's interested in their voice and that they've got no influence on anything. And that is very closely attached to English identity. Um, And that powerfully then works through into the voting leave in the uh, Brexit referendum. Those people in Scotland and in Wales who feel Welsh or Scottish, on the other hand, tend to feel that somebody is interested in them, that they do have an influence on something, namely the Scottish and Welsh governments. So this sense of nobody's interested in us, we have no voice that matters, that counts, is is very closely aligned with English identity. And obviously from a 
from the perspective of of Wales at least, where you know we we know that we don't really matter in kind of world historical terms. I think part of this is the sense of loss that that many people in England feel, and you see this kind of in 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 many kind of formerly great nations that have fallen on harder times. A sense that we used to matter in the world, uh, we no longer do. And there's clearly a very strong element of that in the Brexit vote. A hankering after, a, a, a romanticising a past that has gone. So, I mean, one of the one of the things that we do in the book on Englishness is we, we analyse Brexit in in terms of nationalism and one of the kind of one of the kind of standard tropes of of nationalism is there's an idea of a great past and we and a fallen present and that's something that you find it's a kind of standard thing in all kinds of nationalism there once was a a a, a wonderful nation x which has fallen on hard times and what we need to do is remove those things that has have pulled us down into this sorry condition and I think so much of Brexit uh, rhetoric kind of conforms to that kind of trope. So, you know, Britain was once great, apparently stood alone against all the, mm-hmm. against the, the Nazis. Um, you know, the nice bits of empire, weren't we great, a civilizing force in the world? We've fallen on hard times. What we need to do is throw away those European chains, remer- emerge back into the world and all will be well again. That's kind of standard, but it also relates to the sense that in the present, nobody cares about us. We don't have a voice. And one of the problems, I think at least, and, I, and I don't, I'm certainly not putting words into my co- uh, co-author Ilse's mouth here, but one of the things that strikes me very forcibly is the progressive left in England has been very, very, very poor at engaging with the sentiment. It kind of treats... Englishness as a kind of an embarrassment to be a face somehow via Britishness, and that doesn't really work. Um, it's also, I mean, the, the things that Tom Nairn, I think, was also looking yeah. at was that, yeah. and his critique of why Labour in England would never manage to stay in long enough to make a change and essentially retrieve England and Britain, if you like, was that uh, the, the left or Labour just didn't take the structural issues seriously. The House of Lords, you know, the the kind of uh, the, the voting system that just keeps perpetuating this hopelessness. I mean, when we are listening to the diagnosis of, of a country that feels that it's being left behind and no one's listening, you yeah. think, well, sure, look at your structures, matey. You know, you've got a second chamber. It's, I think it's the only one in the world that's actually larger than the elected first chamber. Yeah. And yet none of the direction that looks like a kind of Lib Dem sort of slightly fussy, flaky, you know, it doesn't really matter kind of issue when it comes to the way that Labour deals with politics. And they've all been, those issues have all been shunted into the mythical second term even now mm. by Keir Starmer. No, totally. But I mean, obviously, Nairn's dissection of Labourism and of the kind of archaism of, of the UK state uh, stands um, still, I, I think it's, you know, extremely important. But I would... The, I would add a slightly different point, which is the the identity point. It's the unwillingness to engage with identity. You know, there are there are some great progressive stories to say about England and Englishness. Yeah. If anybody ever bothered, you know, they're there. Uh, Caroline Lucas. Those of mm-hmm. any anybody listening to the podcast 
who hasn't listened to Caroline's uh, Caroline Lucas's speech at the Tom Nairn conference. Really, that you need to stop listening and and go go and listen to that now. It's it's just amazing. She does exactly what progressive politicians in England fail to do, which is to use Englishness in a progressive and thoughtful and creative way. What what the centre left tends to do is try to kind of it just leaves that territory. It seeds that territory. It tries to talk about Britishness, which inevitably falls back into some pretty uh, reactionary uh, tropes. And it kind of invests in this regional identity, which ain't all that for reasons that we've already discussed, rather than, you know, facing up to uh, to Englishness and trying to use that raw material and turn it into something different. And I think that's one of the central failings of uh, of the English left. And we're seeing it very, very clearly, I think, with with uh, Stammer. People around him have realized that you know patriotism is something that they 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 need to engage with. And but what they're doing is they're just surrounding him with a thicket of Union Jacks in every photo I see of him. And you know, mm-hmm. that is you know, it's it's the easy route which is gonna and I suspect they're just gonna repeat what we've seen historically, which as you said said uh, Leslie is just you know a brief period in power while the Conservatives regroup and get ready to to resume business as usual. And does that mean just finally and really <laughs> finally, although I, I have a strong sense that we will we, we will be dying yeah. to have you back, Richard. Um, do you think then that Britain is heading for a breakup because of these, if you like, path dependencies that you've described? They they seem to they seem to be going in one direction. Although, you know, many people who want independence in Scotland feel at the present somewhat beleaguered. Yeah, I mean, so the the reports um, on the ambivalent union, which we've just published, and we've got something else coming out in the new year, uh, which which is in the same vein, which looks at proper samples in each of the four constituent territories of, of the states. Um, and, you know, I, I, well, we can maybe talk about that in, in the new year. Yes. That, that suggests that there are all kinds of ambivalences and tensions in the union. Britishness means different things in different parts of the state. Attitudes towards the unity of the state are fundamentally ambivalent. And indeed, you know, outside of Northern Ireland itself, you know, people in Scotland, uh, England and Wales would like to see uh, Northern Ireland uh, join with uh, the rest of the island, so to speak. So, you know, this this is a very strange kind of unionism um, uh, even now. So, so, so you know, th- I'm, I'm not going to predict the breakup of, of Britain anytime soon. But anybody who thinks that these tensions have gone away needs to look at the evidence. They're very much there. And I think that a lot of the problems that we've seen, uh, which have been exacerbated after Brexit, are going to continue even if we have a Labour government uh, in in London. Well, you're booked for the new year for that new year for that other com- uh, report that you've just described there, Richard. Thank you so much for your time. I mean, really, that is mind-blowingly interesting, and I hope everybody else has found it the same way. Um, I, I now I'm, I'm going to say this is going to be such a mess of trying to say Happy Christmas in Welsh, but Nauleg Hawen. 
Nadolig Sawenichi hefyd. Thank you very much. There you are. Well, nowhere near it. Yeah, but you say it properly because I think everyone would love to hear hear you actually speak Welsh. Just just say Happy New Year and Christmas and something in Welsh. So Nadolig Sawen a blwyddyn newydd a. I bawb yn yr Alban. So that was Happy Christmas and a Happy New Year to everybody in Scotland. Yeah, got the Alban bit at the end. Yes. You hear an afi bra Christmas and an afi bra hogmini when it comes to your cell doing in Wales. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs>